So Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. That's as far as I got this week. I, I ori- originally intended to maybe make it through the end of the chapter, and I got through two verses. But I think things will speed up. These are a big two verses. So here, that, here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, so those two verses um, are pretty, pretty big verses. There's some people, I think Spurgeon was one of them, who said that they may be the two, two most important verses written uh, like of literature in the last you know, several thousand years, um, which can be debated. But anyway, you get the idea right here. Is basically, this is a thesis statement of the book of Romans. And you have the gospel laid out in here. Um, Martin Luther, before the Protestant Reformation, when he was an Augustinian monk, he came across, read these two verses and they haunted him. For five years, he said, that he just couldn't get these verses out of his mind. He actually said he, he took a pilgrimage to Rome and they have the, the stairs there. I forget what they're called. They might be like the weeping steps or something where, where you know, that supposedly... Pontius's stairs that Jesus would have had to walk up and Pontius was walking up and down as he was doing, you know, before the crucifixion. Anyway, if you're Catholic, you go there and you're supposed to, I think, be on your knees and go up and kiss each step and say however many Hail Marys and and whatever. And that's supposed to, you know, that's a lot of credit for you. Anyway, so Martin Luther, um, shortly before the Protestant Reformation, went went to Rome and went up the weeping steps and, you know, did that. Um, and he, and he, he wrote about it later and said the whole time all he could think about was Romans 1, uh, 17 at the end. The righteous shall live by faith, except for his version was the just shall live by faith. And so he said as he's going up trying to say the Hail Marys, all he was being able to say was the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And as he finished, he's like, this is garbage. You know, this whole, you know, going up the weeping steps and, and kissing each step that this would buy him credit from, to save him from purgatory, you know, and, and that just, that was, that was one of the things that really stuck with him. And shortly after that, you know, he had more of a breakthrough of understanding that yes, the, the, the just shall live by faith. You know, it's not, it's by no good deeds that we do. Um, that's kind of my introduction to those two verses now. Uh, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a powerful statement. You really think about it. If you think about um, as we try to proclaim the gospel and tell people, you know, it, it's something that for whatever reason, we're naturally, there's a, there's a shame, there's a hesitancy there. Um, I think there's usually a fear of ridicule, a fear of rejection, uh, you know, the and I think it's kind of interesting too that a lot of times that that this feeling of fear isn't is more imagined. I mean, sometimes those things happen, um, but a lot of times I think we imagine it to the point where we don't even get to get to really proclaiming the gospel. Um, but then even even if those things happen, which I like to remind myself, if if you proclaim the gospel and you're you're ridiculed or rejected, let me read Matthew five eleven. Um, Jesus talks about that right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Uh, and I think that's a really good reminder when we're, when we're thinking of, you know, when we're afraid of like, oh, what happens if I get rejected? What happens if I get persecuted? You know, and usually in my mind, at least, these are like worst case scenarios. It's like, what happens is you get rewards in heaven. You know, so this really shouldn't be, it's not a fear. It's a fear that's, that we have assurance from God that, that even if the worst case, ha- worst case happens, that's almost like best case for us in the long run. Um, and I think that's important to remember. Um, and another thing is, I think a lot of times, um, whether it be in our lives, or you definitely see some preachers doing it, this fear, uh, this, this being ashamed of the gospel can cause a lot of people to compromise the message that, you know, well, the message itself is bold and strong. Suddenly they're kind of toning it down a little bit and maybe not, you know, not coming right out and being like, Jesus is Lord. And if you don't believe in him, you know, then he is the only way. But you're know, not really putting it that way. Be like, yeah, I, I believe in God. Do you believe in God? And people are like, well, yeah. And they're like, oh, you know, that was a good, that was a good gospel sharing, you know. But that's, it's, that's not really the gospel. It's a lot more than that. And we need to keep that in mind to not be ashamed and to not tone it down um, to the point where we water down the message. Um, let's see. And the message itself... I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here. It does sound foolish to, to unbelievers, to people without this spirit. I mean, if you think about it, you know, you are claiming that this, this uh, you know, laborer, a poor Jewish laborer from 2,000 years ago in this little, you know, what good can come from Nazareth, you know, this little tiny town, was actually God. You know, he was actually God and he lived a perfect life like nobody's ever done. And then he was killed. And then guess what? You know, what none of you have ever heard of before is that, you know, he, he was killed, you know, and not just like, a, oh, he fell asleep and died peacefully, but like, you know, stabbed, you know, and uh, crucified and he came back to life, you know, and then God pulled him up into heaven. And that's what we believe, you know, and if, if you're not a Christian, that sounds crazy, um, and that's what, that's what the Bible says, you know, the, the word, First uh, cha- Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we see it right there, you know, that Christ crucified is, is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. Um, but as it says, the foolishness of God is, is wiser than men. And that's, that's the message right there. But without the Spirit and without Christ working, it's foolishness. And we, we ought to expect that. Um, I also wanted to say, oh yeah, and kind of on that note, that, that God's wisdom is 
is like the opposite of men's wisdom. So we're coming into a situation when we proclaim the gospel where we're going to be hitting opposing views. Um, and I think part of that comes into to living out the gospel and to, to seeing it over time that, you know, God's wisdom, even though it might not make sense at first, especially to an unbeliever, as you see it playing out, you're like, wow, this is, this is not something you would have thought would have worked naturally. But then as you see it, you see that it's wiser than a man could have come up with. Now on that, I, I was thinking about it too, is like Paul says, wrong chapter now, um, that he's not ashamed of the gospel and we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel. Um, really, we ought to be proud of the gospel. We're not supposed to, we can't really be proud of ourselves. There's not much we should be proud of. Um, but Christ coming down and dying for us, that's something to be proud of. Um, and thinking about when you're proud of something, I mean, when you, talk to, when you talk to parents, if they're a proud parent, you know, you can tell, right? I mean, the conversation loops back to their kids over and over and over again. It's not, on the flip side, the ashamed ones, you know, the one who, you know, that perhaps they're, they're uh, you know, their kid's in prison now, they had trouble with drugs, you know, they don't really bring that, they don't bring that child up a lot into the conversation, um, but the one who's a, a PhD now and off doing important work, something, something, you know, keeps coming up. In the same way, um, we should be proud of the gospel. It's, it's important to us, and it's something that in conversations, each thing should be <laughs> reminding, us of some, reminding us somehow of the gospel, and we keep, you know, looping back, and, you know, people think like, wow, like, this gospel is really important to them. They just keep, everything keeps coming back to it. Um, and so, looking at verse 16 again, I'm not... Not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Um, and I think that that's pretty, that's pretty key right there. Paul's saying he's not ashamed because it is the power of God unto salvation. Um, and as I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, some things we do deserve to be ashamed about. Sin, we should be ashamed about sin. Um, other things are more like funny, like the other day when Mrs. Merva was out in our yard and I was carrying something backwards and I tripped over the rabbit thing and I, and I landed sprawled out there and everybody laughed at me. Like that was, uh, it was funny. Um, but, <laughs> but at the time I was a little bit ashamed, a little bit embarrassed. Um, but like that makes sense. But the gospel is not something that we should be ashamed about. Um, Yeah. Okay. So, and also, so with the power of God, um, I read a story that I thought was, was pretty good. You know, a vacuum cleaner salesman comes up to this old farmhouse and knocks on the door and he's, he's the pushy type of fellow. And, you know, the, the farmer's wife opens, opens the door and he goes, welcome, you know, kind of pushes his way right in. And she's like, what, you know, he's trying to, trying to interrupt him and he doesn't even let her interrupt. And he's like, I'm here with this vacuum, you know, such and such, it does, da, da. and she, you know, each time, you know, every time she tries to say something, he, he, you know, cuts her off, you know, and he, he's going through his spiel, getting, you know, working right up. He thinks he's nailing it. And he, then he takes out a bag of garbage and dumps it right on the floor and, you know, full of all types of gunk and stuff. And he's like, and he's like, I guarantee you this vacuum will suck it up in two minutes. And if it doesn't suck it up in two minutes, I'll eat it with a spoon. And the lady looks at him and goes, you better get your spoon out. I've been trying to tell you that we don't have electricity in this house. And, you know, and so really the, the point of that story here is um, before you sell the product, you better know whether there's power to make it work. Um, and here we see Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because he knows 
that there is power behind this gospel. He has seen it. It's worked in his life. He's, he's, he's healed people. He has seen um, people that were lost be found. People that were blind have sight. He knows that there is power in this gospel. And so he feels no shame saying it because it's the most powerful thing he's ever seen. So in breaking down these two verses, oh, and I want to I also give some credit to John MacArthur on this. I used him quite a bit here, so... Um, breaking it down into four, four words to remember, really. Um, the first one is power. The second one is salvation. The third one is believe. And the fourth is righteousness. And this is basically, if you put them all together, you get the gospel. So we're going to break it down. The first word, power. Basically, God, like as I was just saying with the vacuum cleaner, God has the power. He has the power to change people. Um, and we see throughout the Bible that people can't change themselves. Um, I mean, that's largely what the Old Testament is about. Israel trying, Israel unable to, to make their own way. Uh, Jeremiah thirteen twenty three, I think is the, is, you know, can a man, or is it, a leopard, can a leopard change his spots? Can a man change the, can Ethiopia, I'm messing it up, but you get the idea. Um, that, no, a leopard can't change his spots. Um, they, men, we cannot change our hearts. Um, even if even if they wanted to, and and if you think about it, that's pretty interesting. That I think a lot of people want to. A lot of people want to change their hearts. Wish they could. I mean, think of all the the sales and advertising that goes into you know. Oh, here's this uh, workout material. You know, if you can, if you buy this and follow our program, you know, you will be happy inside, um, or whatever it is. You know, and so I think they're appealing to a lot of people that want to want to change themselves, um, all not realizing that really it's, it's God that has the power to change a person. Um, in Romans, I'm going to hit a couple verses here. Romans 5, 6. Uh, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We see here, you know, nobody was able to make themselves godly. We were all ungodly, and Christ was the one that made us godly. And then also Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Um, again, we can't do it. The, the law was unable to, to save a person. It merely proved how guilty we were. Um, and as I hit in 1 Corinthians again, a verse I already read, 23, we preach... Let's see. Never mind. That was not the one I wanted. 4.20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. It's the real thing. And the Bible certainly tells us that God has power. Um, I'm just going to list off a few verses here. Uh, like Psalm 79.11 says God has great power. Psalm 89.13 you know, talks about God's strong arm. And these are all themes that you can see hundreds of times throughout the Bible. Uh, Exodus 15.6, he is majestic in power. Um, Isaiah 26.4, he is an everlasting rock. Um, I'm going to read a couple of them. Isaiah 43.13. It 
See, Isaiah 43, 13, also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? You know, when he determines to do something and does something, nobody can change that. I mean, that's power right there. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 39. You know, I looked at that verse earlier and I was confused and I see now why my nine looks a lot like a one. See, 3239. <clears throat> See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Same thing. You know, He is the, he is the power behind the universe. He is the one that when He determines to do something, you know, none can, none can rescue out of His hand. None can, um, you know, He kills, He makes alive. It's up to God. Uh, Jeremiah ten twelve and Jeremiah twenty seven five both say you know God made the earth with His great power. I mean, there's there's some evidence right there. I mean, you look at at this world. I mean, and you know the the laws of the universe. Like every every uh, force has an equal or no. Yeah, that when it's caused by something, it has to be caused by either an equal or more powerful force. If you look at this world, it had to be caused by either an equal or more powerful force. Um, so then just a couple more there. Psalms. I told you guys I wasn't going to make it to the end of the chapter, right? Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This idea that, that the Lord just speaks and he's so powerful that the world has to conform itself to, to match what he says. And uh, also Psalm 89, verse 8. Um, o Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? Rhetorical question. Who is mighty as the Lord? So in, so then moving it onward towards Jesus in the New Testament, uh, Matthew twenty eight eighteen, Jesus says, "All power is given unto me." And then back to Romans uh, one sixteen, it says, "He had the power of God unto salvation." And one more Psalms reference that kind of ties that together, Psalm one o six verses eight and nine. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deepest, through a desert. Um, and I think we see the same thing here in the New Testament with, with, our, with our, our salvation, is that with his mighty power, he's able to save us, and it's for his name's sake. And really, the manifestation of God's mighty power is in salvation. That's his great work, is Christ on the cross, and able to save those who were lost, able to bring to life those who were dead. Um, so, second word from Romans chapter 1, verse 16 there, is salvation. Now, thinking about the word salvation, we, we pretty casually, I mean, I guess I shouldn't speak for everyone else. Sometimes I get caught uh, fairly casually using the word saved. You know, like, oh, is that person saved? Or like, you know, oh, yeah, they were, they're, they're saved. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, in a sense, at least in my mind, it's kind of become like a Christian talk. A person saved, a person not saved. Um, 
with, and a lot of times I don't really think about it too much. But say if somebody had no idea what we're talking about, and you, they heard, overheard us say, me saying, like, that person is saved. Their question would be, saved from what? Like, what are they saved from? And, you know, you think about it. They're saved from God's eternal wrath and judgment, from sin, um, from eternal death, from Satan, from hell. Um, and those are, those are pretty uh, consequential things and pretty, pretty heavy. Um, and I think if I thought about that more often, I would be a much more grateful person um, that, you know, when thinking about that, I am saved from those things. When I say that, yes, I'm saved, you know, me like, oh, whoa, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that I am saved. Um, and also... I think I would be more bold in sharing the gospel if I'm thinking that, like, this person is not saved. They are currently in a situation where they are facing eternal condemnation and judgment, um, and they need to be saved. Uh, We just went through Revelation, and I think we saw throughout Revelation that it's pretty bad for people that aren't saved. Um, I think that was one thing I really took out of that, is that, like, the people we know and friends, family, that do not believe are in for it. It's not going to be good and that we really should give them the, the gospel so that, so that you know, any, any chance that they would be saved, that God would use it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's one challenge for you and for me. Um, we're talking about saved. To, to kind of finish that with a saved from what? You know, and to, to think about it a little bit. See, and then so tying that to God's power, you know, which is that it's God's power that He can make salvation happen. And as I talked about for a while before, we can't make it happen, but He can. Um, And how He can save us right out of the grave by doing something only He can do, by putting new life into us, by making us into a new creation. And just like with, I think that people want to be, want to change, I, I also think that most people want to be saved. I mean, you look, you look around, you listen to conversations, you talk to people. Um, people are yearning for, um, a lot of times, you get like political salvation, you know, like, oh, I, you know, if this and this would happen, you know, think of the state of our country, things are going downhill, we really need something, some type of, of, of salvation, like the social status, the economic stat, status, you know, inflation is raging, just look at the prices, you know, we need, you know, we need an economic salvation, we need you know, whatever it be. And then you think about all the people that suffer from depression, that are despairing. Um, and, and even if you think about those who aren't depressed yet, um, that aren't saved, but, but they think that everything will be all right. If, if only they can get this or do that, or, you know, this will, be, this will be what gets us there. And that's what they're basing, like a lot of people, that's what their happiness is based on. And if you rip that out, you know, if they understood that that won't make them happy, where would they be? They would, they would be left with a, with a big hole. They would be, you know, despairing. And the truth is that nobody will ever be all right until they have God's salvation. Um, and that's what brings the lasting joy that's not just a temporary or a, or a fleeting moment. Um, and that salvation is, like I said, from, from wrath, from judgment, hell, sin. And, and that sin encompasses also being saved from, from ourselves. You know, um, another, another one was that salvation is also salvation from lostness. 
you know, so many people are lost. They don't know, um, like they're on the wrong road. They don't really, they don't know where they're going, where they come from, where they are. They're just, they, they don't know. And um, they're confused. Um, but when Christ comes into a life, you know, he answers those questions pretty definitively, pretty quickly. Um, you know, that where they came from was being lost. <laughs> uh, where he's going, you know, now we're going to be with the Lord, with heaven. And that's not just like a temporary this life answer. That's a, an eternity answer. I mean, where he is, he's in God's hands. Like God is in control and that God will take care of him or her and make, you know, make the ultimate journey to heaven happen. So first two words, power, salvation. Third word, believes. So basically, we, we have the start of the gospel here is, is uh, God has the power to make salvation happen. Um, but how? Like, how's the process work? Um, and it says right here in verse 16, to everyone who believes that salvation works through faith. You know, through this believing is how the salvation happens. Um, and this, is, this believing is that, that Jesus Christ is God, that he came down in the flesh, he lived a perfect life, he died a death that paid for the sins of believers and rose again, proving both that he is God and that God had accepted his payment for our sins. Um, and the gospel and our salvation hinges on this belief in Christ. Um, as Paul said, you know, if he hasn't risen from the, from the dead, we are, we are of all men to be most pitied. Um, and salvation, um, as we get to the next section of it, doesn't depend on what church you go to or what good deeds you do or how Christian you appear. Um, that God's salvation comes through faith, uh, a childlike belief in Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, like I said, this is kind of getting the idea, that idea with the end of verse 16 to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It doesn't really matter who you are. His salvation is for everyone who believes. Um, and yes, excuse me, the Jews first. The Jews are God's chosen people. Um, the, the Jews were, were brought the gospel first. They were given the law through Moses. But as evidenced throughout the scriptures, uh, God's desire was always to spread his blessings um, and his message to the, to the Gentiles. I mean, we see Jesus. He says he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel Yet at the same time, he continually went out of his way. He had compassion on the Samaritan woman. You know, the Roman centurion came. He says, "Not I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. And, and when he gets to the end in the Great Commission, he commands, he commands that, that the gospel be preached to all nations. Um, same thing with Paul. You know, he would first always go to the synagogues. Um, but then he would also go to the marketplaces and preach to, to the Gentiles. Um, and while God chose Israel... He also created every man and will perform justice to everyone who ever lived. So, and I think the Bible is very clear that he has, he has a heart to reach out to not just the Israelites. Um, and how through Jesus, God made salvation available to everyone. And so we see as we go through the New Testament letters that Jew, Greek, rich, poor, black, white, none of that matters. What matters is belief in Christ. And we would do well to remember that. We would do re well to put that right at the top of our list of, of uh, what falls first in our hierarchy. Um, and we see, uh, 
you know, in the, in the New Testament times, people recognize Christians by their love for one another. I mean, it says, you know, they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. Um, the early church, you, you get all types of people. You get Romans, Greeks, Jews, barbarians. You get rich people, poor people, you know, all types. And th- this was a much more segregated society than ours is right now. Um, and they would meet together and they would, they would eat together and they would care for each other. And this was crazy at the time. Like, that was something that was unheard of. And people saw that and they're like, you know, what is this cult that is making people lose their minds to, you know, like this Roman centurions here with, with this, uh, you know, this Persian fellow, like this is nuts. Um, but that is because they, they believed in Christ and they understood that the hierarchy was those who love the Lord are in the Lord's family. They're in the, they're in the sheep, they're, they've been brought into the fold and they are brothers and sisters. And this is a very, this is very unlike the world, the way the world views things, but it's very like Jesus. It shows God's heart. And so uh, to recap so far, the gospel has power, has power to save, and it has power, well, furthermore, it has power to save the one who believes. Uh, but to take it a step further, you know, it's still like, that's not incredibly clear. How does that work? Um, how does believing save a person? And what does God's power do? Let me get to the fourth word, righteousness. The word righteousness is used more than 60 times in Romans. Um, in this particular phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, if we think about that word righteousness, uh, it can kind of be defined as the character and quality of being right. Um, and I think that really, you know, that comes down to like God would be the most righteous, obviously, when you, especially when you think about it that way. Um, and as, as you think about, you know, so yes, God would be righteous. He has the character and quality of being right. Then you think about people, you're like, eh, not, not so much, not even really close at all. Um, very corrupt, very sinful, wrong on a lot of levels. Um, and as you look into our own hearts, and we'll definitely see this as we go further into Romans, is there's really no hope that that we could ever be righteous. Um, nobody's close to making it. Nobody can boast. Uh, we all sin, and really all, the only option we have is to fall at the feet of the Lord in humility. And and I think right in here, the, the wording of this shows that the righteousness coming out of the salvation transaction must be the righteousness of God because we have no righteousness. And that is exactly how it works. God gives us his righteousness, that Jesus took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And when he looks at Christ on the cross, he sees our corruption and is rightfully punishing that. Um, I want to read... Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
And we, the verse that I, I, whenever I, this is one of those verses that when I say it in my mind, I picture Mark Thomas, like I hear Mark Thomas's voice that Christ became sin for us. Um, I don't know why I think you've, you've used it a couple of times. And so now it's just your voice in my head. Um, so Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Um, and so you're getting this picture of the gospel with this, with this verse here, um, is the power of salvation to everyone who believes um, because that belief activates the righteousness of God upon us. Um, now going forward here to finish up verse 17, um, the, kind of what I was talking about with Martin Luther earlier, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is not one that is isolated in the Bible. We see it in, uh, in Habakkuk. It says the righteous shall live by faith, which I always like to point out the Old Testament ones and be like, you know, this isn't some new idea in the New Testament. We see it in Galatians. We see it again in Hebrews. The righteous shall live by faith. You know, this is, and it makes sense as we've been talking about, we can't be righteous on our own. Really, The only way that we could hope to be righteous is by God's righteousness on us. And he makes it clear that the way that that works is by faith. You know, by faith in him, he puts his righteousness on us. Um, let's see. And thinking it through, you know, that's precisely what Christ accomplishes on the cross. Um, so to kind of close out the, the, the gospel idea here, uh, verses 16 and 17, as I said earlier, are pretty much a thesis statement for Romans, which gives you the idea that, yes, we are going to go through the gospel over and over again as we go through Romans. Um, and we should all love to hear the gospel because it's our, our joy and our salvation. So we will get to hear it many times. Um, I'll read the, read the verse once more. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, remembering the, you know, the four parts. The power of salvation believes righteousness. God has the power to save us to everyone who believes. He imputes the righteousness of his Son. Um, and I did want to just go a little step further here and say that this does, it makes a change in a person um, that we don't earn righteousness, but, but this work in our hearts um, should change us. It's the type of stuff um, that makes a person you know, give up all that he has, be willing to, to sacrifice his life, um, that does not allow a person to bow down to the culture or pressure from anything else to, to sacrifice or compromise the word of God. It makes someone more interested in the kingdom of God than, than in politics or their 401k or sports championships. It, and it, it should give people a greater love for the Bible than their TV. Um, and I, I, like, I read something where the person said that many people are 18 inches away from salvation. That's how far their head is from their heart. They know up here. They know how the transaction works. They know that, yes, they're supposed to believe in Jesus. You know, and they think mentally, yes, I think there is a God. I think that Jesus was there. But just for whatever reason, um, the power of God, it, doesn't, it hasn't taken root into their hearts yet. Um, and I think that that makes this message even more important is just that it needs to be 
you know, needs to be hit upon in the, every, every, uh, every opportunity for the, for the Spirit to work on them, to, to just be pounded with the gospel, um, and, you know, for the opportunity, for the power of God to change them, that if the Lord wills, that, that the, the message would reach their hearts. Um, so with that being said, I'll, I'll close in prayer. Dear Father, we, we thank you for, for your word. Uh, we thank you for your gospel message and your love for us, um, that you would, you would die for us who certainly did not deserve it, um, that you would, you would save us, that you would give us your righteousness um, for, for us who had no righteousness. Um, we pray that you would work in our hearts, um, make it more and more real, and, and that we would see greater manifestations of your spirit in our lives. Help us to boldly proclaim it, um, and that our lives would just be a great witness and a great glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.